I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What Very difficult to ignore criticism, even when you know it's unconstructive, right? If somebody is insulting you or your work and, and you know it's, it's, it doesn't, it's baseless, it's hard to ignore it, but becoming better at that, I think, is, is a way to, to be more productive and also to feel better about yourself. So you can't sort of let your surroundings define you, even if you, you shouldn't be completely cut off to, to criticism either. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Britt Brogard is a professor of philosophy and the director of the Brogard Lab for Multisensory Research at the University of Miami. Her educational background includes a medical degree in neuroscience and a doctorate in philosophy. Her areas of research include perception, synesthesia, blindsight, consciousness, neuropsychiatry, and emotions. On this episode, Professor Brogard takes us inside the lives and brains of geniuses, savants, and a wide variety of ordinary people who have acquired truly extraordinary talents one way or another. She also dives deep on her work ethic, frameworks she's implemented, and how her research has impacted her approaches to life. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Britt, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm very excited for this one. You have an interesting career since your research has both been around neuroscience and then also philosophy. And I would love to know kind of the origin story of your fascination and interest. So when did you first get involved and interested in these topics? I was interested in um, neuroscience and the brain uh, initially. Um, but then when I did neuroscience or studied neuroscience, um, I sort of lacked a little bit of the big picture. So that's when I started taking an interest uh, in, in philosophy, in sort of roundabout ways. And so I did uh, actually um, study a little bit of cognitive linguistics before I realized that the really big picture that I was interested in was the, the sort of the, the, the philosophical picture of consciousness and the mind and so on, but empirically informed. So, so that's where the neuroscience still comes in to the picture. So you want to take hard sciences to be able to understand some of those bigger existential type questions? Yeah. So, of course, that's um, 
debatable whether you can answer the hardest questions uh, on empirical grounds, but at least I think you can answer some of those questions uh, using the empirical sciences. Very interesting. I know we're going to dive a lot into that, but I'm really intrigued. And a lot of research I've done into you is just about your prolific work ethic. And you seem to be one of those people who can push themselves incredibly hard. Have you always been like that? Yeah, I think I um, I have always been like that, but I've not always uh, been like that academically. I initially wanted to be a writer, an author. So I did uh, back in, in my home country, Denmark, uh, publish um, an, a young adult novel and, and some poetry. Uh, and I, I thought that maybe I could make a living uh, being an author, but I guess uh, it's very difficult, especially when the country had or has like five or six million people. Um, and a lot of them, of course, don't buy books. So, so that's when I, I, um, I went to, decided to go to the university and I entered academia. Uh, so, so yeah, in some sense, I've always been like that, but not necessarily in the same area. So what shifted when you switched over to academia? Did you did you have a different mindset, a different thought process, or was it still the same person just trying to tackling a new a new subject? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, some of the the, the things I, I wrote that I I never really uh, published, meaning I I wrote a, a novel but I never sort of polished it enough to see if it could get published. Um, that explored a philosophical question a question about the mind. Uh, so it's basically uh, a kind of locked out uh, a locked in scenario someone who is completely locked in um uh, meaning they, they cannot communicate with the external world but are completely conscious on the inside so there are examples of that of course in, in reality uh but in those cases uh, you have at least some possibility of blinking your eyes and in that way communicating with the world so the the book um or the idea that i was exploring was sort of the idea of being conscious without any ability to communicate with, with the external world. What about your relationship with failure? I'm asking because I know I know you have that deep-rooted science background, uh, and I would love to just know how, how that plays into how you approach problems. I know you take on very difficult challenges and, and are known to go against the grain almost, so I'd love to get your approach and just your overall thoughts around failure. Yeah, so there are many aspects to, to failure. Uh, so... So one is uh, one is rejection. Uh, so whether you're trying to, to uh, publish books or you're publishing articles, um, you you you're going to have to um, get used to live with with rejection because it's very rare uh, that people just sort of write a novel and send it out and oh and there was an agent and then it got published and then um, maybe they went into academia and then uh, whatever they wrote in academia or um, just got published, right? So you have to, to expect um, rejections and learn to live with rejections. And that's, I think, is, is initially hard for most people to, to, uh, to learn to not take it personally that if you have a rejection and sort of uh, take, see if you can find something positive in that rejection, especially if you, if you got some comments uh, back uh, on your work, you can use it to make it better. Was there a point in your career when you started to be able to embrace that and take on these failures and learn from them better? Yeah, I think um, I think when I, when I when I still thought I, maybe I would make a living out of, of writing 
fiction. Um, I think that, that uh, I didn't necessarily learn as much from um, rejection. So, so I did uh, with poetry, for example, have rejections also published in poetry magazines and some of it was, was accepted, some of it was rejected, but uh, my approach back then was very much just like, okay, let's write something else. Um, I didn't, I didn't sort of go back and revise what I had to see if I could make it better. Just let's write something else. Uh, in in uh, in graduate school and and afterwards, I think I, I think I I, um, I started to to learn to to look at at the comments that I received uh, more carefully. Uh, so the comments in the case of, of publications, but also. Of course, I know comments if, if you realize that your own theory or your own experiment doesn't work. But I think I, I started sort of um, modifying my ideas uh, more so I went back to the same ideas and tried to look at them from a new angle. So that's a, a, a different and more productive approach than, than just giving up on what you had and, and doing something completely new. Do you have an, an example of, let's call it, looking back at an old problem? in a new way. I'm curious how you do that because I, I want to be able to learn from you. I want the listeners to, and if we face rejection and we've got to go back at a problem, I'm wondering how you approach it differently. Yeah. So, so of course it, 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 uh, the, the many examples of that. So my last, um, <clears throat> academic book, for example, um, where I was, I was working on the idea of language, uh, being, um, being a kind of um, a resource for working out perceptions. So these specifically was uh, words like see and look and seem and so on. Um, and and that, that took me um, a while. So, so I actually worked on that book for, for many years because uh, initially it didn't really work what I wanted to do. And so in this case, it was, um, I kept working on the idea, but I, I think I narrowed the, instead of like looking at perceptual language more generally, I, I focused on a specific part. And so I made the, the problem easier to solve in a way by, by narrowing it down. So, so in this case, it was an, an example of focusing um, instead of necessarily taking, taking a new approach, but, but you can, you can still look at it as a new approach in the sense that you have, less to deal with if you can sort of narrow, narrow down the problem. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I've heard you're one of the most intensely focused people there are. Is this something you classify yourself as? Yes, I, um, I, I think, I, I think I'm, I'm able to, to focus uh, in a way. I don't, I mean, I, I, obviously the things that, that can distract me, but I am... Um, able to focus I realized that actually when I uh, went to the university and in Denmark back in Denmark so my my um, when I first started there and and I took um, I took some seminars where in, in Jutland which was the other uh, across across the uh, small ocean there from Copenhagen um, and since I, I, I wasn't there regularly, I had to sit in the lunchroom um, and work. And at some point uh, when I was working, somebody noticed that there was like a lot of noise and a lot of people talking because people were starting to arrive. 
Um, and so there were like 10 people being loud in the lunchroom, but I, I didn't seem to get distracted. So it's not something I necessarily knew that I was able to do until somebody sort of pointed it out to me, but I am able to, to focus, which is not to say that, that there's nothing that can distract me, but, but I, I don't get uh, easily uh, distracted by, by external uh, stimuli. Uh, and of course that can be a huge disadvantage too, because if I, I walk on campus, for example, and I'm thinking about uh, some idea I have, for example, I, I'm not, I'm really not conscious of my surroundings. So, so people often think that I'm, I'm rude because I don't actually uh, greet them when I pass them, but I'm really not noticing them. So, so they can also be a disadvantage. <laughs> Unfortunately, that happens to me as well. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, for the people close to us, you brought up something really interesting a minute ago, uh, and I, I'd love to pull on this thread. You said you weren't even really aware of how deeply you could focus until someone pointed that out to you. I'm wondering how that changes when, when there's something innate in you that's pointed out and it's almost like the curtain is peeled back where you were unaware of it before. How do you think that changes after that? Well, it, 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 it has only changed me in situations where perhaps the distraction was so intense that I was thinking like, well, I can't, I can't really focus because of this instruction work outside, say. Um, and then sometimes thinking back, well, maybe that's not true. Maybe I should just get started. And then I get started and then I sort of, Maybe I partially make it true because somebody pointed that out to me. So it might not be that um, that is all sort of innate, but also that when you believe that something is true about yourself, maybe you are more likely to cultivate that aspect. So, so even, even if I wasn't as good at, at, at sort of just attending to what I was doing and not attending to my surroundings, uh, when the person pointed out that that was the case, like believing that you are, you can you can use that um, to your advantage. Of course, you can't make yourself believe stuff. That's not, I mean, that it's, it's, you sort of have to really, truly believe it. And then um, maybe that will partially make you cultivate uh, that aspect of yourself. Yeah, I, I heard you say that and it just made me think to my own life. And, and certain times someone had mentioned something that I, I was unaware of before. And then because of that small little thing they said, I started to cultivate that even more. Uh, and you were hitting on something that relates to this a second ago, just about belief. And I'm wondering what the narrative is like in your head around self-belief. Are you someone who just believes that you're capable of so much, even when others doubt you? Not always. Uh, I, over time, I think I've, I've, uh, I've been able to filter out constructive criticism from, from criticism that's not constructive, uh, whether, whether intentionally or unintentionally not constructive. Um, so, so, so there will be times when I, when I get criticism and I'm able to see that, well, they're right about that um, uh, and that I should make some changes, right, to, to my work, or it could also be my my uh, my way of, of being or my behavior, but but also to to my work. Uh, but in in other cases, of course, there's criticism that you need to to recognize as non unconstructive criticism. 
Um, and, and sometimes intentionally unconstructive, sometimes it's just because people don't know better. Um, so, so I think it's, um, I think it's, it, it just takes a little bit of time to, to um, become better at recognizing criticism that will help you and, and, and sort of ignore criticism that will not help you. It's very difficult to, to ignore criticism, even when you know it's unconstructive, right? If somebody's insulting you or your work, right? Uh, it's, and, and you know it's, it's, it doesn't, it's baseless. It's hard to ignore it, but becoming better at that, I think, is, is a way to, um, to be more productive and also to feel better about yourself. So, so you can't sort of let your surroundings define you, even if you, you shouldn't be completely cut off to, to criticism either. Besides time and experience, uh, is there anything that you've done that's helped you kind of kind of step outside yourself there and and take this constructive criticism and then filter out the non-constructive? So, um, so could you could you ask that question again? Yeah, uh, you mentioned that a lot of this has to do with with time and just experience in terms of getting constructive feedback and then also non-constructive feedback that can just be damaging. And you said the key is being able to filter that. And I'm just wondering for someone who hasn't had as much experience in be able to filter that out, how could you go about doing that? Yeah, so to fill that criticism, of course, you, it can help um, knowing, even if not much, but a little bit about human psychology. So, of course, we cannot all be, be psychologists, let alone clinical psychologists. But I think that if you, if you um, just sort of start thinking a little bit about how people in general behave um, and, real, and also realize that there are differences in uh, people's uh, personality and different reasons that people might give, be giving you criticism, whether it's criticism of, of what you're doing, your work or <clears throat> your idea, <clears throat> or it's criticism of you. Um, there might be, be situations where um, there wouldn't be a good reason for them to uh, have ill intentions. Um, and then you can sort of like start to think about like, what, well, how do people behave are they uh, if they're if it's your competitor who is criticizing you well then there's maybe um some reason to be doubtful or at least sort of be hesitating a bit before you you, you internalize that criticism um if it's someone that's clearly um has your best interests in in, in mind it's it, it's likely that that the criticism is something you should like at least think about and consider. So I think like just um, thinking about human psychology, it doesn't have to be all that theoretical, but just being like reflecting on how people behave and where they're coming from and what is the reason for giving you the criticism that they're giving you. Is it in a professional context? Is it a friend? Is it um, somebody who's, who's um, envious of you, right? Or or is your competitors? So all, if you're sort of reflecting on human psychology and how people behave, I think uh, that will help to to filter out some of that criticism. Of course, it, it it's not going to help necessarily to make you feel um, self confident and sort of not take it personally. But I think it, it eventually that will it will go in that direction as well. If you if you start to think if you think about like okay, so 
what 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 are their reasons what are their like motivations for doing what they're doing thank you Britt. that was tremendously insightful i'm so glad we went a little bit deeper on that that was just very eye opening uh, and and one of those things that's often overlooked so i appreciate that we were just discussing in terms of your ability to focus and get into deep work and you're someone who puts out just a tremendous prolific amount of work and quality work at that and I, i'm always interested when people are able to do that especially over a long period of time what is your day like are, are there certain work type structures you put in place in order to be able to to put out that amount of work you, yeah it, it has changed of course uh, over the years uh, so um so i've had so I, ha- I have a daughter but but now she's uh, she's she's a little bigger than she used to be. When you have a young child, uh, it can be difficult, of course, to to just structure your day the way that you want because small children um, uh, they don't they don't respect <laughs> the way that you necessarily structure um, your day. But how to yeah? So how do I structure my my day? Um, so starting with the presence. Um, email can be enormously distracting, um, and and it's sort of um, becoming a little bit of an obstacle to a lot of people. Um, of course, it's always nice to get an email from a good friend and so on, but you also have suddenly a huge number of emails uh, from um, various people um, in in your at your workplace uh, or people you don't know. If you also like me, you're you're blogging. You might have comments on your blog posts that are showing up in your inbox, and so so email, social media, and so on. Um, I try to to sometimes do that uh, at the end of the day. Uh, so if I'm uh, if I have to to do something that's more creative, or I have to come up with something new, or I have to think carefully through. Um, through theory or uh, design and experiments or something like that, I might just like not open my email inbox at all um, until late, later at night when I'm kind of like tired. Maybe I'm even like half watching television while I'm looking at my email. Of course, there will be some emails that can't be dealt with uh, quickly and in sort of without attending carefully to them. But I think that if you start out in the morning by doing all this other stuff, uh, that's not the work that you really want to produce, then um, the whole day can suddenly be gone um, doing that. Of course, it's, a, it's sort of a balance act um, because all these other things need to be done at some point as well. Um, but, but I find it it's easier sometimes to, to do the, the more, the, the, the tasks that, that require a lot of thought, do those first. Of course, first uh, for me that nowadays uh, means like in the morning uh, or whenever I, I get up is when I'm most productive. Um, that was not always the case. So I guess what I would recommend like finding out when you are most productive and, and using that time to to reflect on, on what requires like a lot of thought and doing things like email, but also uh, like searching a certain reference for a paper that I'm writing. Um, that searching for a reference uh, is it can be time consuming, but it doesn't require a lot of thought, right? It's just sort of just time consuming. And so so that's the kind of stuff that, that I would try to do later or while I might be doing other things as well. 
I mean, something that so I can I might be searching for a reference while I'm watching or half watching some some show on television, for example. Yeah, you bring up such a great point, though, about understanding what works best for you. And I think, unfortunately, so many people, they'll, they'll read a blog post or an article about you should be the most productive in the morning. And if that's not working for you, then there's no reason to continue that. It's about figuring out in the in the context of your own life what works yeah, best. Yeah, I think, yeah, naturally, I, it, 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 I'm not a morning person in that sense. Um, so when I was, uh, before I had um, my daughter, I, um, I, I, I always worked at night and and could also sort of work a lot i mean keep working um into the night right because i could sleep a bit longer in the morning so i could make up for it in that way um so i think that it was sort of not by by choice or by because i'm naturally inclined to to be productive in the morning but because for very many years now i've had to get up very early in the morning uh and and so you sort of get turned around a bit. Um, and, and that might not be because you have children. It could also be because you have a, um, a job that requires you to meet at a certain time in the morning um, or you go to school and your classes start at a certain time in the morning. Uh, and so you might be forced to, to be more productive in the mornings uh, and less productive at night. But, but naturally, um, I would normally just work at night when everything was quiet and I could just continue working until I I felt tired or I didn't have anything more to think about uh, or I needed a break from a problem or something, right? So so naturally I think I was I was more of a night person or I am more of a night person. Yeah, with with regards to to work and, and the times you do it, I read that you're one of those people who doesn't require much sleep. Is that true? Yeah, it, um, it varies. I mean, it's it's again, it's sort of um, situation determined a, a little bit. So it's certainly true that when nothing else uh, sort of is requiring your your time and energy, um, I can get by with sort of relatively little sleep. It's probably still true. I would say that for for people who have small children, for example. If you are, uh, your night is completely interrupted, um, you you should probably not like try to force yourself to to get by on very little sleep. So so there have been times in in my life when I felt like, well, I needed more sleep, but but maybe it wasn't more sleep. It was just like it was less quality sleep. So it just I needed more hours because it was less quality sleep. But yeah, if it's, if 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 I'm not dealing with external stresses or, or it could be internal um, stresses um, I think I can I can just like get some hours of good quality sleep it can sort of vary a little bit but it's maybe slightly less than 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 average uh, but again that you can have some kind of situational pressures or internal conditions that make you I mean where the, your sleep is not very sort of productive, your sleep is not high quality sleep. So then obviously you will need more hours to make up for that. Something you were saying a minute ago uh, around your creative process. And I'm always intrigued about different people's creative processes. Is there anything you do? I know you mentioned just uh, eliminating the email, but anything outside of that that helps you get into the more creative juices flowing? I, um, I tend to 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 read uh, a bit outside of my area sometimes. Uh, so, 
uh, maybe not to an extreme extent, but so so depending on your area, it's, it's hard to define exactly what it is for every every person. Um, but some people only read, uh, for, for instance, in my field, only read what, what what they're already working on and in their area. So, but by if you if you uh, actually sort of start to if you study things that are slightly outside of your area, um, that might actually influence. Uh, your thoughts uh, in in your area in ways that they might not be immediately obvious, but then later on suddenly you remember having read something else and that they might work to solve a certain problem in your area. Uh, so I think like one of the things that I'm uh, I'm particularly uh, good at um, sort of naturally um, is to to um, take two areas that absolutely do not fit together um, and sort of make them fit together but, but that sort of is a creative process right to i mean that's the um that's why we, we're talking about thinking outside the box right but that's essentially what it is to to um to use strategies that that we um that occur to us uh because of what we have heard about or seen or experienced in other areas and use those strategies to sort of problem solve the areas or the, the problems in, in the area that we're working on. Um, so when, when we talk about thinking outside the box, um, we're not talking about, oh, we're just waiting for some miracle idea to come to us, right? Um, I mean, that it may feel like, like this aha moment when you have a new idea for how to solve your own problems. But usually it's because of your experiences, including what, say you read outside of your area, you, you get some experiences outside of your area. That's usually why you have these um, insights that, that can feel like, like sort of genuine like insights that are not inspired by anything else, but usually they actually are inspired by something else. Yeah, that entire cross cross pollination of ideas is just endlessly fascinating to me, and it, it makes me think about uh, your mentor David Chalmers, and and he said something about you, and that is, she is a master of bringing together ideas from different areas in surprising and powerful ways. And you mentioned just reading outside your your domain specific expertise. What are some of the things you are reading outside of your uh, expertise? So I. Uh... So I have not, uh, certainly not, well, still not, I'm not, not, not working, for example, in political philosophy, uh, but I, um, I tend to read a lot of political philosophy, uh, but also political, political science. Um, and, and that's also because, of course, I have an interest in, in politics um, more generally, so it can help to have a little more theory to, to sort of process the information you get. Um, but occasionally, for example, uh, when, when I read political philosophy and also legal philosophy, philosophy of law, um, it's a sort of related area that I'm also very interested in. Again, um, the interest is not purely, um, I mean, it's not, it's not my, those are not really my areas. And, and so in some sense, it's not really an academic interest, but I often find that, um, methods that are used in, um, in legal philosophy, for example, or legal theory, or in political philosophy, um, might be used to solve some completely different problems that are unrelated um, to to those problems. So, so for example, in <clears throat> there's a lot of political philosophy that talks about 
obviously about uh, democracy. How do we um, really succeed in having um, a democracy where where people's opinions like are heard to some extent, right? Everyone's opinion in some sense um, is heard, and people um, voting, of course, is a way that you make you can have people um, hear people's opinions. But how else can you sort of uh, ensure that that debates are constructive and and so 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 things like that have sometimes informed my my work in more narrow um, areas more theoretical areas of uh, philosophy of minds uh, about disagreement for example or um, about um, for example knowing well not knowing but maybe sort of estimating what people will do. Uh, so, so that's also what's, what pe some people will refer to as theory of mind. So predicting what people will do or, or sort of reading what people are thinking, what their motivations are and so on. So, so I think that's, that, um, so that's an example where, where I've sort of, I naturally read outside of my area into to legal and political philosophy, but also because it relates to our everyday world. Like every time we turn on the television or the news channels or the radio on a news channel, we hear about politics, right? Or legal decisions or Supreme Court decisions. And so, so to process that, I'm just interested in having those resources to do that, to process that information, but then it just sort of happens to also be helpful in other areas that are unrelated. Yeah, you mentioned having those resources at your disposal, uh, and, and I view these as different frameworks and different mental models, such as the understanding human psychology, you mentioned political philosophy. What are some of the other big, broad frameworks uh, that have helped you just navigate some of the complexities of life? So do you mean academic? No, outside of academics. I'm thinking, like you were mentioning about human psychology, and that has helped you both in your career uh, oh, and, then, and then also in your life. And I'm wondering, what are some of those big, broad disciplines uh, that just help you throughout everything you do in life? Right. So so clearly, psychology, um, even, even some very fundamental basic psychology and personality psychology can be uh, very, very helpful to to um to the process where people are coming from what their motives are um and so on but also um yeah philosophy of language um which does not necessarily have to be um the philosophy of language it can also be sort of linguistic semantics uh pragmatics uh that's i think is enormously helpful to also discern what people's motives and motivations are um, so there's a, a big framework in philosophy of language slash linguistics uh, that concern sort of what we call in ordinary language to read between the lines, but um, the technical term for that is sort of implicature uh, or what is implied by uh, speech. So what is not said explicitly, but what is implied. And there's a big uh, theory about, about that that also relates to... Um, finding out if people are saying something that is reasonable and can be argued with, or if people are just saying something that's completely unreasonable. Uh, so, so an example from Rice, who's the father of this um, reading between the lines, you might say in ordinary language, 
um, is suppose that um, you see someone who um, who is uh, who's out of gas uh, on the side of the road, and they ask you um, where they can find a gas station, and you happen to know that there's a gas station around the corner. Um, you also know that that gas station um, is is closed for the summer, so you say, "Oh, there's a gas station around the corner." Um, now, of course, you did you didn't say anything false. There is a gas station around the corner, um, right? But you, when you walk away, that person is going to have taken you to have implied that it's a gas station where they can get gas. Um, so one that's that's likely to be open, right, and and is not out of gas and so on. So so in this case, of course, it's very unproductive to. In, in the example, the sort of extreme example where you're saying something that's clearly misleading, but a lot of uh, cases like that where in, in, in ordinary life where you can you can think about um, what people are what people explicitly saying and what they are implicitly saying um, or why they're saying it, right? So so which words politicians are using to answer a certain question. So if you see, like, when, when, we, when you see the, the task force briefings, for example, nowadays, um, and, and, uh, and people and the, and the politicians, for example, answer a certain way um, to a question, you can sort of sometimes, like, become better at seeing where they're coming from. What they're, what they're not saying is sometimes more important than what they're saying. Do you just feel like you're operating at a much higher level now that you kind of have a, a strong grasp on some of these big frameworks? I I feel I do feel it's helpful to to understand um, human human behavior, but human human minds more than than their behavior. Their behavior is maybe part of what you use to figure out what's inside people's minds. I I think that that's. Um, it's a really interesting uh, problem. It happens to also be a problem in philosophy of mind, but it's also a problem uh, that is helpful in almost any aspect of, of life, right? So, um, so just to, to get along with people, um, to, to, do, to complete a job interview well, to um, whether you're, you're, you're the one who's interviewing for the job or you're the, the interviewer of the job applicant, um, whether it's to um, interact with, with customers, if you have a, a business or, or uh, you're going to the bank um, and you're trying to get, to get a loan, like knowing um, more about people's, uh, what people sort of, how they operate uh, and how different people, also that, that, that there are differences between people and how to discern those differences between people because people have very different personalities. And if you can sort of zoom in on those personalities, you you might be better able to see where they're, they're coming from um, and what you would need to, to say or do um, to be successful. So uh, for example, say that you, um, well, clearly uh, if you work in advertisements, for example, right, uh, understanding, um, what what the audience is uh, that that you're trying to advertise to, uh, so that's an example. But 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 in everyday life, um, you, how you interact with people, um, it can't it can't always be the same. 
that's that's not to say that you should be not be yourself and you should be deceitful or something like that. But you you can interact. You cannot interact with with everyone in the same way, and also be successful. It's just not how everyone works. Um, so there's not sort of a single personality out there, and you can just like act in one way with respect to every person. Uh, so so. So again, here we have a balancing act where you have to, to um, think about what, um, what, what, what are your values and what do you stand for and how can you be yourself without being the same in every interaction and robbing people the wrong way, for example. Uh, so, so that's something um, I think is, is yeah, something I've learned from from both psychology and philosophy of language. And so those are some of the, the frameworks. That's incredibly insightful and helpful. You've brought in the personalities a lot, and I'm wondering if you've done a lot of your own research into your own personality. Are there different personality tests, or is that something that you kind of scoff at and, and are not a believer in? No, I think that, that uh, the people who do work in personality psychology, um, they have to rely on and develop sometimes and or rely on existing personality tests because they're not very good ways of empirically investigating personality except by by using uh, tests uh, testing um, groups of people and to figure something out about personality in that way but I don't think that it's helpful um, on an individual level to use a personality test that might be helpful to, to, to get you started on thinking about personality perhaps um, but the difference is that if you're a personality psychologist and you're looking at, uh, say, 200 people, um, participants in, in a study, and you want to see what are the um, connections between extroversion, for example, and job success, right? Um, you would have to distribute some sort of personality tests to find out, okay, who is like more extroverted and who is more introverted, and how successful are they, and so on. So this is about groups and, and statistical averages um, or statistical numbers for that group. But on an individual level, if you take a personality test uh, on an individual level, you wouldn't, I mean, so especially those personality tests that are not um, the clinical te tests that are administered by, by psychologists, a lot of the tests that you find out online, the questions that, that are asked there um, they don't work very well for everyone and they might actually give you the wrong results and 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 also being told if you are if you do take a personality test and you take say the big five personality test then you're told that say oh you're leaning towards extroversion and conscientiousness and uh openness uh, but you're not uh, you're not super agreeable well it's such it's very those terms are very very general so so I don't see that that's necessarily helpful. Um, furthermore, if you were to go, if you if you were to go and have a personality test administered by a clinical psychologist, um, so somebody who is practicing psychology or has a, a psychology practice, and you get a, a, a personality test that they they would need to interpret the results. So so a lot of these tests are not sort of just like um, like okay, it's, it's not like like giving you a, um, a number on a scale from zero to 10 on say extroversion. Uh, there's a lot of interpretation going into to interpreting um, clinical personality tests that are administered to individuals. Um, and 
and it's not something you can do yourself. So, but but you can figure out um, what how you were how you are like by looking at what are called the facets of the different traits. So, so that's something that you can you can look up. So, if you if there's one scale of measuring personality that's called the Big Five, um, and so that's the one that most people uh, know about. The it has the acronym OCEAN. So. Uh, so the O for openness, and C for conscientiousness, E for extroversion, A for agreeableness, and N for neuroticism. And and each of those dimensions of personality have six facets, and you can look them up. And so take extroversion, for example. There are many aspects of extroversion, and you might fall very differently in some of those aspects. So one part of extroversion is, do you um, need some significant amount of alone time to feel uh, good sort of generally on a daily basis to sort of employers do you need a lot of alone time which is not to say that that you feel good about being isolated all the time um, or, or do you do you need a certain amount significant amount of social interaction to feel good about yourself right so that, that's just one aspect or facet of of extroversion that uh, dimension of, of personality um, and so if you go into the, the other things like cheerfulness is another dimension, you might be very, very, you might have different results on those different facets. And, and so if you did want to look more at more theoretical uh, aspects of personality psychology, uh, it would definitely be helpful to, 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 to sort of divide it up into to the facets so you get a better picture and understanding of who you are. But, but also I'm not necessarily in favor of everyone, um, or I don't think, it's not that I'm favor or not but i don't think that people um necessarily need to read theoretical personality psychology to understand themselves right it doesn't matter what these aspects of yourself are really called in personality psychology so you can sort of almost just make your own aspects or facets um for the things that if you realize that well, I really thrive when I have a significant amount of social interaction in my life. Okay, great. So you know that, right? Now, if that's officially is called something, even the fact that it falls under extroversion is less relevant. The fact is that if that's what you need, then that's what you can sort of thrive to to do to feel better um, on on an everyday basis. Yeah, once again, this is all nuanced and, and contextual, but I think it's a good starting place for a lot of people. W one thing I'm really intrigued about by you, you brought up a little while ago, is when you say you were thinking through different theories, and I'm just wondering about your overall learning process. And I know we've talked about some of the big frameworks and things of that nature, but when you're starting to uncover something new and you're really digging deep on it, can you walk us through what that learning process is like for you? I, I'm even wondering when you're reading something, you, you think of a, a new idea or you cross pollinate with an idea. What are the next steps for you? Yeah, I, I, I think I, um, I need to, I need to um, visualize it in some way. Um, maybe in some cases uh, the visualization is not, in images, what can be like by writing down an outline or, but it could also be, I mean, if it's an experiment uh, maybe it's a diagram, maybe it's, um, it's something, it's not necessarily uh, some diagram that, that has any formal word. It's just like a diagram I make up myself or uh, a flow chart or that I'm, that I just 
make up myself or an outline um, or so if, if I do make an outline where it's sort of text that I use to visualize um, what, what, what I need to do, um, I try to make it as detailed as possible. And then of course there are lots of, of, of points in that case where there might be lots of points in your diagram or in your flowchart um, that, that are going to be blank, right? Because if you had the solution to, to the problem um, right away or the, the uh, you had developed the theory already, and then, I mean, it was not much, much more work to do than you could just sit down and, and write it. If it's, if it's something that has to be written, then you just said, sit down and write it, uh, write it out and uh, or write it up. But these, these gaps then is something that you can start to, to explore, right? So depending on the area that you work in, um, your, the process of exploring those gaps are going to be different. So in some cases, it might be searching for information um, in library databases or online. In other cases, it might be um, conducting some empirical experiments or um, or some get some getting some data from um, say consumers or whatever it can be to fill in the information. And sometimes when when you then fill start to fill in the blanks. You have to then restructure uh, your outline or your diagram or your flowchart, um, and and so 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 that's a bit um, how I work. So I have also I'm not always so it sounds like that's what I'm always always doing or have always been doing. It's not always what I'm doing, um, but I also often regret not doing it. And so, for example, I might have think I have uh, a theory that's fully developed. Maybe I do have some ideas there that, that might work in the end, but I, but I might even think, oh, I know, you see how that theory is going to go. And then I will start writing um, a paper, for example, um, to that's supposed to be publishable in some form, uh, only to find out there are too many gaps in that theory. So I basically was wasting a lot of time because if you really are trying to write something that you think is going to be published, you're going to be a little more careful about what you write down. Um, so you, you, you're potentially wasting a lot of time. So you have to throw out all that work potentially and start from scratch again. So, so, so I do often go back and think, oh yes, I should have done, I should have made a better outline um, and identified the areas where I needed to do a little more research or figure out how to solve um, certain problems before I had, I could just sort of sit down and say, write it up or, um, or, or conduct the experiments for that matter. Yeah. This is going to be a, a follow-up somewhat nuanced question. And I'm wondering, what do you think your highest leverage activity is? Meaning, is it sitting down and mapping out your thoughts? Is it exploring new research, reading anything that you just find the most amount of value when you do it? Yes, yeah, so it sort of depends on where you are at in terms of a, a project or a task that you're trying to to um, complete. Um, sometimes, if I'm I'm thinking of of something completely new, right, where I'm not in the middle of, if I don't already have some ideas, uh, but I'm thinking like maybe I have a vague idea that I want to explore. Um, I, I do some personal brainstorming sometimes, um, but not necessarily in the sense that I just sit down and then I, I put thoughts down on a piece of paper, but I might do that in combination with reading up on different stuff, but um, reading up on, on different stuff might also be involve a lot of 
uh, reading an abstract of something um, of a paper, uh, realizing okay, that's not what what what's gonna you gonna work for for your project. Then going to another paper, or you might even start reading um, say a paper, and then it was not what you really needed after all. So you don't necessarily finish reading that paper. Um, but then in the meantime, you you might sort of be brainstorming because you have perhaps. I mean, you have to have at least some big idea of what you're trying to do uh, to get it started. But then um, to sort of explore that, you you would sort of get input um, from from what you read or what you what you research or look at um, online and so on. You get input that way, um, and that will so let you you be your your partner in your brainstorming uh, process. Will be the information that you find. Um, through the library databases or online or, or by talking to, you might also be talking to other people to, to solve uh, some of those problems, even if it's your own project and you're not really genuinely brainstorming with other people. Oh, that's really intriguing. You, you mentioned putting down some of the papers when, when you're not getting out of it what you hope to. Is that something that's very important to you is just being able to quickly identify and sift through important pieces of information? Yeah, so I think that um, I think that that sometimes in uh, in our educational system, and I, I mean mostly like college, um, which is what I'm doing, right? So um, it's not it's not um, structured necessarily the right way. Um, so I'm thinking of having uh, students read a ton of material and then you're testing them on that or you're asking them to write a paper afterwards on that material. I think that's not the best way to, to go about it. Um, so the better way to go about it, of course, you have to have some basic knowledge. So some, some reading, you will need to do some reading, of course, to even get like any idea of what you're going to do. But the best way to say, if you're writing a paper or a blog post or a story, newspaper article, um, I think is to, um, at least once you have 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 this basic outline and, and you need to find out what, what you need to, uh, what, what kind of information you might be looking for, um, it's better to, to be reading um, the things that are relevant to, to, to that project that you're completing, right? So instead of just a, sort of reading um, for no reason at all. Um, Except, of course, you have to have some basic knowledge, but re reading very, very detailed technical work, as students sometimes are asked to do, um, without it being related to a project, can be unproductive. And it doesn't, uh, it's shown in psychology that it doesn't help people um, remember that information very well. Now, when I said before that I read outside area, in political philosophy and legal philosophy, that uh, is not sort of just random reading, right? Because I have an interest, like most people, in what's going on in our society uh, and, and to process that information that I'm interested in reading, uh, legal theory and political philosophy. So I have a different motivation for reading it and remembering it. It's not like I have to remember it just for the sake of remembering it. I have um, I'm motivated, right? I, I don't have to work on remembering it because when there's interest, then you remember the, the material. Um, but but that's sort of the reading outside of the area. If you're in your in a specific area, I think it's better to to yeah to find out what kind of information you need, and so that 
is not necessarily reading five papers. It might end up being reading five papers, even reading 15 papers, because you're looking for something specific that you can use to solve your, your problem. But then it also might not involve reading 15 papers uh, from start to finish, right? So, so you can sort of, if you know what, where you are in your project and what kind of information you're looking for, uh, you, it's, it, you can sort of quickly determine whether um, a certain kind of article is, is relevant to, to your project and can help you. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's almost like building a house. You need to have a, a right structure and, and the, the framing before you can get into the nuance in terms of the electrical wiring and all of the little ideas. Is that kind of the, 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 the little nuance of this? You need big picture first, and then you can get d deeper on the details? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's another way to put it. That's, why, that's one aspect of it. Okay. Um, it, it, I also think it's like, uh, suppose you were to build your own house. Um, you don't have to, to uh, study, um, study plumbing, every aspect of plumbing and every aspect of, of how walls are constructed. You would just need to study those aspects that we go into building a house, right? So there's a lot of plumbing in a house that, that, that that's not the whole field of plumbing. So there's a lot of plumbing that you wouldn't have to to have knowledge about in order to complete the plumbing in, in your house. Um, uh, so, so, um, so you wouldn't have to, to, to know how to construct um, a tower in a big city in order to, to build a house, right? So there are people who work in areas where they get that information, but if you have this project of building a house, you only have, you need only need a little bit of information about how to build a wall, the kind of wall that goes into a house or, how to do plumbing in your house or how to do the electricity in your house, but you wouldn't know, have to know everything about electricity or about plumbing or about building walls or anything like that. Yeah, you know, you bring up a great point. Hence why you're the featured guest and I'm just the one uh, behind the microphone here. <laughs> so thank you for uh, for clearing that up. Do you have a few more minutes? I know we're kind of running up on time sure. here. No, that's, that's fine. Yeah, because we, we haven't even gotten into to a lot of your work, which is how I first came about you. So I know back in, in 2015, you wrote the book, The Superhuman Mind, Free the Genius in Your Brain. And I'm just wondering how you define, for people unfamiliar with your work, just the superhuman mind. Yeah, so so we, we, we found some um, in, in, in our laboratory, the lab that, that um, I, I run, where it's mostly student-run, um, we, we found some individuals who had brain injuries or would hurt their heads in, in various different ways, who uh, had the typical disabilities that you have after a brain injury, but who also had some sudden talents um, and motivations that they didn't have before. So there is an example of uh, a public figure that we have studied, Derek Amato, who hurt his head uh, in a, by jumping into the shallow end of a pool, uh, and and before the accident, he was interested. He was interested sort of in sports, not on a, at a professional level, but he was also a salesman, and that was his job. And he was certainly not interested uh, in in music. But he suddenly, after he came to, uh, so he sort of more or less slept for three days after the brain injury or um, traumatic brain injury, uh, and suddenly he had an interest in playing the piano and we don't know what it sounded like when he went and played the piano the first time because 
um, nobody, I mean, he might not remember correctly and we weren't there, but what we do know that it didn't take long before he actually was playing the piano um, where he was invited uh, to play at, uh, around the country and also put out a couple of albums. Um, and so, so whether the motivation uh, came first and then he became very good at playing the piano uh, as a result of the, the accident, or the talent sort of was developed by hurting the head in a certain way. We don't really know, but what we do know is that um, if that restructuring that we we know takes place when you um, hurt your head in a certain way, it's not it's not to recommend anyone to go and hurt the head uh, intentionally, but in some uh, some few lucky cases, there's a restructuring going going on in the brain uh, that's creates a certain talent in some way that we don't fully know yet how uh, that's developed. But that suggests that um, that we do have a kind of potential that we, so it's not necessarily the genetic material that we happen to have, though of course that puts some limitations or can certainly put some limitations on what we can do. But clearly the genetic material doesn't determine the, um, what, what you're going to, do or be good at, right? Because Derek Amato, um, he thought he was going to be good at, at, at selling things. He was a salesman. Um, he probably was good at it. Um, and then it turned out that he was really, really good at playing the piano. Um, well, if the genes were the determining factor, um, then that wouldn't have happened, right? So, so then you would just say, well, well, it would have to be genetically determined that he should play the piano, but then why would the accident be needed for him to play the piano? Another example is uh, also public figure, uh, um, Jason Pattett, who all hurt his head and, and started, um, after his, the brain accident, he, uh, brain injury, he, um, he started uh, drawing geometrical, geometrical uh, shapes and he, he gained um, a full, a more full understanding of certain areas of mathematics. Um, and before that, uh, well, uh, both before and after the accident, he he worked. He was he was working in a furniture store. Um, he also worked, of course, after the accident in in a furniture store in the same furniture store because it's not like uh, becoming good at, uh, say, mathematics or certain areas of mathematics or at drawing certain shapes and um, mathematicals shapes that that immediately um, allow you to, to quit your job. Um, but so, so he, he was working in a furniture store. And so again, in, he was a salesperson specifically in a furniture store. Um, but clearly the genes you're born with then would not determine uh, what he, what kinds of things that he is going to be good at. Right. So, in, so of course, in these cases, it's not something that they could control. Um, and it's not something that we currently can control, but it does show that we have a certain potential that's not genetically determined. I mean, so that we have more possibilities than perhaps we think that we do have. Yeah, that's how I first came across your work and why I got so excited about just really exploring the depths of human potential. And one of the things I'd love to dig into the specifics on, you were talking about Amato and his ability to play a musical instrument. You were talking about math as well. So is it at all clear if, let's let's put this in, in terms of math, if the information is already in your head or if you're just able to rapidly learn on it? Any idea there? 
it's difficult with mathematics uh, to answer the question fully because, and perhaps with music too, because um, mathematics, of course, uh, I mean, there's a certain basic knowledge you have to, if you, if you, don't, if you don't know any some basic mathematics, of course, it's not, you're not going to be able to process uh, mathematical problems, but uh, but a lot of uh, answers to mathematical problems um, are uh, what we call a priori, which means that they are the kinds of things that you should be able to get at by thinking about them. But of, of course, you have to have some basic concepts in place. So so what Jason had did, he did he he was dropped out from college before the brain uh, accident. And he did go back to college and study some basic mathematics because if you don't have the concepts, so there's nothing there to process. But that's why I'm saying it's like difficult to answer completely the, the question with mathematics because naturally mathematics is a kind of discipline. Like certain philosophical questions are like that too. Um, so mathematical questions and certain philosophical questions uh, and probably also certain structures of music. That's something that could you could come up with right by sitting down and just thinking about it so so and that's what 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 a priori means it means that it's sort of um prior to it's, it's not it does not involve empirical investigations it doesn't in, involve uh, it's not something you have to explore the world to figure out so in so in these cases perhaps the information in some sense is in there but again in this case um i've only used your 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 house metaphor, right? You still need some kind of um, structural foundation, and that those would be the sort of the concepts that can be be used to to sort of pr produce the rest. Um, so, so a lot of a lot of these uh, talents that people acquire in in brain uh, after brain injury, uh, they are the kinds of things that that um, perhaps could come from from inside the brain. In some sense, uh, in the sense that that a mathematical problem is something that you could solve in principle, could solve uh, by thinking about it, right? When, when mathematics, mathematicians discover new proofs, that maybe they become world famous for discovering a proof of something. Um, that's something they, they they do, right? By by using uh, mathematical um, the mathematics, the basics, the basic concepts and basic rules that they um, have learned at some point and then sort of keep playing around with those rules and concepts until they are able to prove something. Uh, and when and when mathematical problems are simple enough, right? So if, if you um, if you're asked to add something in your head that's simple, so say 12 plus seven, right? You can just do it. Uh, the information just comes from inside your brain. Even if it's if if it happens to be um, say a, an addition, you have to add two numbers that you have never added before. You can do it using the information inside your head, right? So maybe you never added twenty four and twenty three, right? And you can still presumably um, add them up in your head, and and um, and that's the information comes from inside your head. But you of course have to have the concept of addition and the concept of 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 the number, the number system to be able to do it. Uh, yes, that, that certainly adds some clarity in terms of how this could potentially be working. And, and just so I'm clear, and so the listeners can even dig deeper on this, this is known as savant syndrome, correct? Yes. Um, sometimes we talk about savant abilities because savant syndrome um, is, 
or was originally defined as something that people have uh, more or less from early childhood. Um, though savant abilities um, is, is used um, perhaps more broadly to include um, people who develop those abilities later in life. And then a minute ago, you were mentioning just about having this in your brain. Do you think this largely is in part to us just not using enough of our brain? Um, well, um, not when you put it that way, because any part of your brain that you don't use uh, is going to um, be lost, right? Use it or lose it is like the principle with, with your brain. So. <laughs> If there is a part of the brain that you don't use, then yeah, I'm, I, I'm not the scientist here, so 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 sorry no, for no, that. No, 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 that's it's repeated. Uh, it's repeated in, in in a lot of uh, science fiction movies and so on. That you only use ten percent of your brain, um, but I wouldn't recommend only using ten percent of your brain because you're gonna have a ninety percent reduction of your brain uh, size or or, or neurons or, or neural connections. Um, but what the, what what people what might be true underlying that idea is just the formulation of it is is sometimes unfortunate uh, is uh, the capacity right so do you have capacities brain capacities um, that are, that are not currently that 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 are there in the sense of is something that you you could, you could cultivate or bring out. Um, it's not in that sense, that's not currently brought out, right? So it's a, it's a, a, it's a room in the brain for developing, um, a talent in a certain area. Yes, there is. There's a lot of capacity, uh, that, that can be developed. I mean, the brain has the capa capacity, right? Um, so the question is how do we realize that capacity? Uh, so, so that's a, so that's a little bit different from saying that when, when, um, in certain uh, inception, for example, I think it was said that we only use 10% of our brain. Um, I might be remembering uh, incorrectly here, but certainly in a lot of science fiction movies it's said that we only use 10% of our brain. Um, what, what, how, how do we fix uh, that idea? Well, we could say we, maybe we only use 10%, of course that would be a random um, figure, but say 10% of our brain capacity, right? But of course, if it's brain capacity, maybe we only use uh, 1% or even less of our brain capacity, um, but using our brain uh, or not using parts of our brain makes it a bit sound like there's just some neurons sitting there without doing anything. Um, and that's just not how neurons uh, or living tissue works, right? That if it's just sitting there and it's not engaged in any, any processes, then it's gonna just, you're gonna lose it. Oh, I, I'm just so fascinated by all of this, Britt. I'm, I'm so intrigued, and we haven't even scratched the surface in, in terms of your work, but I definitely want to be respectful of your time, and, and hopefully we can do a round two uh, once everything with, with COVID clears up and we'll get to do it in person uh, at your lab at University of Miami. Just a, a few really quick questions uh, for you before we wrap up here, and, and you've researched some of the more fascinating things I've ever come across, and I'm, I'm wondering for you personally, what have you just been most fascinated by or most intrigued by uh, with everything you've covered? One of the things that uh, I think is is super intriguing is, and also a problem that, that, I, that I can't solve and I don't think anyone can solve it, is, is, um, is choice or will, free will. Sometimes we just refer to it as free will. But, but how are we able, to what extent are we actually able to um, 
to determine our own path in life, right? Um, and and um, and that's a question that's that I, I don't see foresee that it ha- it's going to have clear answer in the near future. But I think it's it's really fascinating to think about. And even if you don't want to get into the philosophy behind free will, um, I think that it's it's fascinating to think about it even in layman's terms, in terms of um, how what what kind of influences do we actually have um, when we make our decisions. I think that sometimes we don't know which influences we have, but in other cases, I think that if we reflect on it, we can figure out what what kinds of influences we have, um, and so. That's something that we at least, it seems to me that, that we have some control over um, those influences that we can become aware of, right? So, so it seems to me that, that we can choose a little bit to be influenced by other people or um, other things. Um, and, and, and that again, it goes back to an idea that, that is uh, something that um, I, got from political philosophy, which is that if you have a diversity um, of people and opinions and ideas around you, so if you don't just have the same group of people who think the same as you, um, do the same as you, but you have people who are very different from you as well, um, maybe maybe your choices are gonna be more genuinely yours because you're exposed to many different um, and you take and, and you respect many different systems, uh, value systems, and ideas, and opinions. Um, then you it's not that then you should be go along with any opinion, uh, but you might be your choice might be more authentic. Uh, the choice you make for yourself. With regards to surrounding yourself with with those different ideas, I would love to just know your favorite thinkers of all time. And I know. Uh, when, you, when you were working on your writing career, when you were still a teen, uh, you wrote about Darwin. I'm, I'm wondering who else might have been some of your favorite thinkers of all time. Oh, there, there, there are lots. Um, so even though I'm not um, a historian, um, Aristotle certainly um, is has has uh, been very um, influential uh, if you're talking about very historical figures. Also, a lot of the existentialists um, in the sense, I mean, in terms of uh, reflections on on philosophy of mind, I think that that um, they have some interesting things to uh, contribute, um, and also, of course, in terms of the meaning of life and uh, what's valuable uh, to you in life, and so on. So, the, by the existentialists, I, I primarily mean the French existentialists like Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, Camus, and um, uh, and. But also, of course, uh, the, the Danish existentialist um, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, and so th- those have inspired me, um, sort of in a in a broader sense than just what has inspired a specific article or idea, you know, in, in an article. But sort of as an overall um, line of thinking, uh, those like Aristotle definitely, um, also perhaps, um, well. In terms of moral philosophy, I would say that the German philosopher uh, Immanuel Kant, um, who is uh, sort of the the father of what we call sometimes we call the golden rule, um, but as but that's the 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 I mean, one way to to think about the golden rule. There's different golden rules, of course, out there. Uh, but Kant's idea of the golden rule is that 
um, it's the idea of respect that you should respect people, and that's there's a minimal amount of uh, of respect that every per person deserves. Um, and when you use people um, merely as means to your own ends, then you're not giving them that kind of respect. So, so that has influenced um, a lot of my thinking um, in in areas sort of a little bit outside of my main areas of academia, but but certainly uh, it's influenced how I think about how I behave or how others should behave. You've given us just a, a treasure trove of, of new information to, to look at and explore. But my final question here as we wrap up, so when we sit down five years from today, what would you need to have happened during that time for you to feel good about your progress with your work? Yeah, so that's that's a good question because um, as the world develops, um, there are ideas that I can't perhaps can't even phantom right now, but that I uh, will be able to at the time. Uh, so, so new new techniques for studying the brain and so on will will be available. Um, I do feel that um, that I I need to I want to. Um, to write some book, some more books that engage the general public. So I want to be able to contribute to to uh, problems uh, in society as well as this sort of fundamental problems in philosophy of mind or in neuroscience. Um, so I would like to I would like to make my my theories and my my research, my empirical research. I would like to make that bear more or even more on on everyday problems that that are occurring around us and and to to be able to contribute to solving some of those problems that that everyone has so so uh, in five years i would like to have applied a lot of my my ideas uh, to real practical problems and hopefully have made a little bit of a difference yeah well five years from now i'm very much excited to to explore that and, and continue to learning from year from you but uh brit brogard this has been absolutely fascinating i'm wondering for the listeners who i know are going to be really intrigued by this where do you want them staying connected with you uh checking out your your research your work obviously we'll have all the books linked in the show notes but anywhere else you want them staying connected um I, well the, um for the more accessible um things that i i sometimes write that can be quite a uh, philosophy related neuroscience related or psychology related uh, is actually on uh, psychology today. So, so the the two blogs there. The, the I have one um, that's called the Mysteries of Love, but it's 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 just sort of a, a name. It's it's what I tend to publish more um, theories of emotions and more things about humanistic areas on that blog. And then there's the one that was named after the book, the Superhuman Mind, where I try to put uh, something some of the slightly more scientific heart science and stuff there although sometimes it doesn't always work out that way but but those are the two places where I have more accessible material well fantastic well Britt Brogard we will be sure to have all that linked up but thanks again for joining us on what got you there yeah thank you you guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there I hope you guys enjoyed it I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through if you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.